a blink of an eye. Life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. August 6th, day two, the family meeting. It was 1.10 a.m., I had been waiting for Archer's surgery to be over, the surgery that would make him all good again, and was in tunnel vision scanning the hallways for a chapel. Dr. Radcliffe, the next surgeon that had just come to find me, I had been wandering the halls, to give me the surgery report. The call earlier, and now the report. I think parts of me were disappearing or getting sucked into the wind tunnel that was sucking out the air I breathed. Dr. Radcliffe had told me, Mrs. Semft, your son is a quadriplegic. I didn't even know how to spell that word. He had begun to tell me he had tried to stabilize Archer by going through the posterior rather than the anterior because I honestly couldn't tell you what else. I just remember his words. He's paralyzed, Mrs. Semft. Oh, what? Oh, oh, my God. Oh, God, help us. He began telling me something else about knowing more in two years. And oh, What is your name again? Chris Radcliffe. Would you just wait a minute and talk with all of us? Can we have a family meeting? I remember his face twitching ever so slightly as he paused a bit, unsure of what I was asking. And I said, a family meeting, you know, where we can all be together and ask you questions so we can understand. He seemed to be thinking, hesitating, unsure. Slowly, he nodded his head. Okay, yeah, sure. I remember feeling some relief. He told me he would come back and meet us in the family waiting room. Family meetings. It was an instinctive reaction for me to ask for one. For the most part, when there was a problem in the Semt family, we had a family meeting. Family meetings are really quite useful for a large family to keep communication clear <laughs> and responsibility in the appropriate lap. Billy and I had been having family meetings since the children were very young. Well, I guess you could say I had been calling for family meetings since the children were very young. Billy and my kids having to suffer some things having a mom as a mediator. Our family did talk just about everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I imagine it contributed to our kids being close. Paula, our oldest and only daughter, 
could be relied upon to keep the journal of decisions at least the first number of years, as our meetings had a bit more formality then, teaching the little ones how to listen and how to have their turn and use it. Our meetings, they were usually brief, but we were always together. It's funny as I think of them now. Our family meetings began a bit more formally in the early days with guidelines and so forth, which the children created, of course, like no one talking too long or youngest goes first, that type of thing. And no surprises on the agenda as they got older, as I really didn't believe in blindsiding anyone. And I wanted them to think about what they had wanted to talk about before they came. But they really had to do with deciding things like play dates. I mean, literally, when the children were young. Five children with preschool and elementary school friends and a working mom. And every Friday, they're wanting to do something with friends, going to or wanting someone to come to us. It meant a lot of logistics for me with five kids. It seemed our meetings were most Sunday nights for years. Although... Some topics were only on the family meeting agenda annually, like what our summers would look like, what sports everyone wanted to play, so I could get my ducks in a row for registrations, Billy could volunteer as the coach for which sport, and I could get the hand-me-down sports equipment all lined up. It was just too much for me as a working mom to make the arrangements for things last minute, or so far ahead of time only to learn that one of the kids didn't really want to do it anymore or had changed their mind because a friend had changed their mind. So my child was changing their mind too. You know how kids are. So I'd say about every February, we'd have a family meeting about summer, which turned into really a meeting about sports. And Billy and I would toss ideas out for them like baseball, swimming lessons, lacrosse, art lessons, and they could choose one thing and they'd indicate their interest, or an older assembly would dissuade them on their interest, and we'd have to bolster the younger ones to decide for themselves, or just go with the flow of peer influence, brotherly influence in our household. It was getting stronger each year as one looked up to the other. I think the saying, just saying, was coined by Paula Semt. I mean, I know it wasn't, but even as a young girl, she was always looking out for her brothers to make their own decisions. They were a tribe. I recently interviewed my daughter, Paula Semt Easton, who is 24 years old when Archer was injured and almost 30 now. She oversees upper school admissions at the Friends School in Baltimore. And you're right, as, as a family we are, we're, you know, we, over the years and through family meetings, you know, we'd get good at anticipating and having to plan and what's coming up. So, you know, no one gets delegating, <laughs> delegating, exactly. Spreading the, uh, the, you know, the tour list, who's going to do what to make it happen. Yeah, it's really true. What do, do you remember our, or, or you have any like thoughts or comments about our family meetings over the years? We had so many. Good and bad and all the things in between. <laughs> Sometimes they'd be like to plan a fun trip and other times they'd be like to mitigate a crisis. Like <laughs> somebody's gotten caught or something's happened and we had to get to the bottom of it. 
Well, yeah, especially for you because you're the oldest. So, you know, when there were problems in the early times, because the oldest, and so you know, everybody else got to listen in. Yeah, <laughs> Dutch. I just remember people asking. They were like, "Oh, you're the youngest of this of that big family." Kind of like feeling sorry for him, like, oh, you know, what's it like having to be the youngest of that big family? And I'll never forget it. And he goes, oh, like, I like it. I, I know all the, about this stuff I'm not supposed to know. <laughs> well, once they were all in middle school and high school, our family meetings still happened, but they were fewer. The kids were fully invested in their chosen sports. Billy was coaching them regularly, sometimes three different sports a year, and we didn't really have any annual family vacations to plan as we lived near a community pool and the rhythm of sports defined most of our weekends and our seasons. We did spend our August in Cape May, though, at Billy's parents' house. As the kids got older, our family meetings, well... We'd always gather for anything special that happened with one of the kids, but as they also got older, I hate to say it, but it's true. I mean, some of our family meetings became more like family inquisitions for mom. I really do hate to say that, but they tended to be around something not good happening, like a fender bender, or as Paula said, a crisis, you know. As they got older, Pete breaking his arm snowboarding, a call from a neighbor about a loud party in the garage, or news about another high school kid getting in a bad accident from drinking and driving. Stuff of raising teenagers. We'd talk about it, at least when and if I heard about it. And yes, there were issues I had to get to the bottom of. I used to actually like not like that everyone had to be present for all of the conversations. I was like, can't anybody have some privacy about their issues here? And now I see that it's worthwhile. <laughs> think they've shaped our family in any way? Um, yeah, I think they've helped like build like family culture and like transparency and trust and um, normalize stress and normalize hardship and also celebrate joy for sure celebrate achievements together. But there I was at Atlanticare Hospital, standing in the brightly lit hallway, looking at Archer's neck surgeon, my head swirling, my heart splitting open, revealing caverns and recesses I had no idea were in me. A crisis was happening. I think I was a bit hysterical, and yet, I guess it was just a knee-jerk kind of reaction for me to ask that doctor for a family meeting. The next thing I knew, we were all in the family waiting room. I just remember it being unkempt, sort of uncared for. I have a vague memory of an administrative type of person at the hospital coming in and asking everyone to leave. I mean, the few people who were still there at that late hour that night. I guess to try and give us some privacy. I looked up and saw Dr. Radcliffe standing near the open doorway. And there they were again, that Hispanic family coming in and out. Although 
It looked like they had thinned out a little bit. They were a big family, just like us. They were being asked to leave, too. I remember feeling bad. I mean, where would they go? I remember a feeling that something about the room itself just wasn't right. It was the chairs. Family meetings are held in circles. I remember my sweet daughter Paula trying to move those heavy industrial-like vinyl chairs, but it was hard to get them in a circle. And it was as if we just didn't have time or we didn't have the energy maybe. I don't know. Maybe we just ran out of time because Dr. Radcliffe had arrived. I remember looking around and feeling it was chaotic and I wanted to create a space for us. I remember seeing my children though, as if for the first time and wondering where they had been. Had they been there? I learned later that Billy, Paula and Dewey had gathered at our home in Baltimore because news was spotty and there was uncertainty on where to actually even go. It was so surreal. Yeah. I remember he was getting on the helicopter or like Davis said, like, I'm calling a helicopter or like the helicopter's on its way or something. And that's how I knew that man, it was really serious because I've been, I've seen countless people get pulled out of the ocean. I've been pulled out of the ocean, like in, you know, I've, I've pulled people out of the ocean. You don't call a helicopter unless it's life or death. Yeah, because you were a lifeguard. I remember we, Dad, Dewey, and I sat in the sunroom in, in like a triangle. And we were just kind of like staring at each other. Like no one was saying anything. Like what should we do now? Yeah. I mean, I think it was a little bit more panicky. Like what do we do? When are we going to do it? What do you think? No, I don't think that. <laughs> I remember we kind of like talked about like, should we drive up to New Jersey? Should we stay put and wait for the doctors to, to call us? Like mom's on her way, you know? And then I remember like, I mean, my sense of time is skewed. I was like, I think we should get in the car and go. And dad was like, no, no, no. Like, let's just hold tight. Like, we don't know anything. Like, we don't know. Like, we don't know. So like, let's just wait until we hear anything. I think for me, it was just like, go where, like, go where the hurt is, like, go to your people. Like, why are we here? Our people aren't here. This is not where the hurt is. Like, get in the car. Like, that's no brainer, right? Get to your people. And I was like, well, I think we should go. I think that, I think that we should just get in the car and and, and just go. I don't know. It was probably looking back. It was definitely me just trying to control something like the small thing that I could control. Yeah, I drove, dad was in the front seat, Dewey was in the back seat. I was driving, nobody said one word. There was just silence for three hours until we got there. And then we, yeah, then we got there. So it definitely was discombobulating to me. Like I didn't know where I was going. And then we like walked in to some random desk and we just said like, we're looking for Archer Semp. Like, I don't, we don't even know like what unit he's in. And then I'm pretty sure somehow we made it up to the ICU. I don't even know. We kind of just wandered our way there. And we definitely passed through a casino for sure. And I remember thinking that was just so eerie and weird. My children seemed so grown up. I wanted to gather them all together for our family meeting. But it was as if I was just watching them from afar. 
So do you remember the family meeting with, uh, with Chris Radcliffe? I don't know if I would call it a family meeting compared to what our previous family meetings have been like. I would call it like Dr. Radcliffe came in and gave us, in, gave us news and we tried to process the news that he was giving us. I don't think that there was any discussion. Like it wasn't, there was nothing to solve at that moment. It was just listening. Yeah, I think there was a lot of silence. Um, yeah, I, I don't think anybody really spoke or asked any questions, except for you. Right. I think we were tending to you more than we were listening, if I'm being fully honest. I think at that moment, we were worried about, like you were the immediate worry at that moment, you know? Yeah, I was, I was like, a, I was a mess. We were all rather upside down. It was just all so surreal. I know I was just out of my mind. It was sort of weird, though, because we had this entire family waiting room to ourselves, but I remember the sensation of being cold and feeling like we were literally unflanked. The assembly or the process, something was just wrong. And in my mind, I realized I was sort of working to arrange the chairs into a circle, like what's not right with this picture kind of thing, as Dr. Radcliffe came in and took a seat. He had been imported from Philadelphia, a spine surgeon from the well-known Rothman Institute. My son Dewey came over and sort of sat on the arm of one chair. My husband Billy was standing. I was sitting. Paula took a seat. My oldest son, Pete, sort of leaned against another chair closest to Paula, but no one was really in a circle. It was disjointed. It was honestly as if no one wanted to gather around the doctor. It was just all so surreal. We listened attentively to Dr. Radcliffe. He was young. He had black, short, tight hair and a broad mouth. He was handsome. He was very serious. Someone asked me later to describe him, and I had to really think about it. As I looked back, I'd say he looked Puerto Rican to me. He later told me when I interviewed him that he was black. He had a kind smile. He chose his words carefully. He began, I told your mom and dad that Archer was very badly injured. I can still feel the moment now. I looked up and noticed Pete moving. I was feeling out of my mind like this was not really happening. Dr. Radcliffe continued. He looked at Billy and turned to me and said again, just like he had earlier in the hallway after surgery, Mrs. Sempt, your son is a quadriplegic. And I can still see his face as if he were right in front of me in this moment as I am talking with you. A quadra what? I really had never heard that word before that night. I didn't know what it meant. 
I could hardly pronounce it. The doctor was kind, and he was so serious. He continued, Archer has sustained a high spinal cord injury. He had a complete break, severed completely at C5, C4. I have fused the break posterior because he took in so much salt water in his lungs that we were concerned about going in anterior as we normally do. He has two screws and a titanium plate, and I will return for the anterior cervical fusion in a couple weeks. Can you say that again, please? And he repeated what he said. What does this mean? He may start to heal on his own and the anterior will not be necessary. But, but what does this mean? That he will not be able to be moved for about a month. But what does this mean? What does this all mean? Mrs. Semft, we just don't know. He is paralyzed and will have no use of his hands or legs. I can still feel that moment right now. Oh, my sweet Lord. Oh, my sweet Lord, help us. I looked up and noticed Pete moving again, hovering further on the outside of our circle. He was somewhat detached. I remember watching as if from afar, but also wanting to pull him in. I remember not being myself and totally being myself, coming from places deep within. But he will be able to use his arms and walk again. Your son is a quadriplegic misassempt. With his type of fracture, it's not possible to and he trailed off a bit, and then said rather strongly to me, I felt he was frustrated with me. Mrs. Semft, Archer sustained what is called a burst fracture. The trauma upon impact was particularly forceful. It's as if someone took a sledgehammer to his upper spine. He will require many special services and accommodations. <gasps> Oh, my God. But he made it, said Dr. Radcliffe quietly, as he gently gazed into our faces. So, but I mean, honestly, I think that I think that that's part of the part of the part of the calling, part of what makes, you know, in the ideal world, you know, doctors kind of still special is that we can try, we, we can try and at our best, you know, be sensitive and empathetic and, and humble and, and, and try and, you know, give people hope. And, and yeah, I mean, there's some carpentry and we haven't even talked about that part of it, but, but, but the real, the real point with these spine injury patients is, is, is just the, the, you know, the future, the prognosis, the family, the diagnosis, um, and, um, and setting expectations. Yeah. And so my goal that night was to set expectations that this is going to be a long process, that he's not going to just like walk out of the hospital that, because I, because I knew just from the, 
from the severity of the injury, that this wasn't going to be something that just kind of turned around and, and, and to give you guys a sense that life was going to profoundly change. I remember him saying it, but I don't remember like specifics of what he said. I just remember that like he said it, he's paralyzed. Like, I think he was telling us like we, like he was trying to mitigate risk, right? Like, and like all of the things that he's supposed to do and trained to do as a professional. But I think like for us, like in our family, especially like we're always thinking of like what comes next, the future, big plans. And he was trying to really just ground us in like the, the right here and now. He went on and said, I will return to assess for the second surgery, but he will need to stabilize first before any further surgery. Everything was in slow motion and everything happened so fast. We all sat in silence. Dr. Radcliffe got up to leave, and then he paused and seemed to look around our circle and scan our faces. I wonder what he saw. You were sitting in a chair. You just kept, like, holding your phone out and, like, shaking it kind of at him and being, like, and, like, asking the same questions over and over and over again. And, like... He just was like so frustrated about because you kept asking the one question that he couldn't answer. Dr. Radcliffe then looked down at the gray commercial carpet with the swirlies and began slowly. Look, we don't know everything yet about spinal cord injury. There are many unanswered questions. He paused and looked straight at me. You may hear about research and cures outside the U.S., but I would not advise that you seek them out. They are not reputable studies. They will take a lot of your money, and they are not rigorously researched with the same standards we have in the United States. He then looked at all of us and added as he gazed down at the floor, for people who sustain spinal cord injuries, like your son and brother, the ones who make it have a supportive family. The dead silence continued. I guess we were all just trying to take it in. The gravity of it all. He lifted his eyes and looked around at us again. It's clear you are a very close family. We don't have any research on that, but anecdotally, we are finding it's the most important factor in recovery. Family. Recovery. Oh, my God. I think we were all numb. I know I was. I was also buzzy. He began to walk to the door to leave. It broke my heart. It really did. Just to even acknowledge the possibility that, you know, he may not be able to walk down the aisle and have a normal family and, and all those things that I'm sure you had envisioned and dreamed and planned for your son. And, um, and 
yeah, I mean, that's, that's, there's, there's no words for that, Louise. It's, it's terrible. That's the challenge is, you know, right. As a professional, you know, I, I mean, I, it's, it's not, you don't always have the right words and, you know, and, and you just kind of, um, you know, you hurt for the people and, you know, it hurts to even deliver news like that. I had so many questions. Dr. Radcliffe. He stopped and turned to look at me. We still have so many questions. Children, do you have questions? No one said a word. Yeah, I don't think anybody really spoke or asked any questions. I have questions. He paused and looked at me and then looked down. It's all unlikely, Mrs. Sempt. There was a two-year period. I just don't know, Mrs. Sempt. We just don't know. He's very badly injured. You need to plan for a different life for him. But Dr. Radcliffe, what I wanted to ask you is, will Archer be able to have a family? Our eyes locked. It was so still in that room, in that moment, in that circle. It seemed like forever before he responded. He stammered a bit, hung his head, and then lifted it and said quietly, I don't know the answer to that. I certainly remember that. Um... Yeah. So, I mean, so, so, you know, it, it's such a complex um, situation for me because, because I want to be, um, you know, I mean, I'd like to think I am professional and I can talk to the science and the research and all that stuff. But I mean, certainly, you know, I mean, a, as a human being, I mean, it's just really heartbreaking and tragic. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And, uh, and the, 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 the challenge, you know, from my perspective is to be truthful, um, which of course I'm you know, ethically and legally and morally obligated to do, but, but to also, you know, not extinguish hope. Yes. And, um, and, and, you know, so, I mean, it, it, and, and I mean, obviously everyone wants to know, you know, what's going to happen. Is he going to be fine? Right. Your question, is he going to have children again? And like, they, there's this kind of, you know, sort of temptation to just, you know, give quick answers. Um, but I mean, the reality is that I, I think that we just don't know, like, you don't know. It all happened so fast. In our interview, Paula told me, my children were all very focused on me again. I mean, imagine your children seeing you in a state like that. But she told me something else. We were just in shock and kept asking the same things over and over again. We figured that you weren't listening because you couldn't understand, like you couldn't, you just kept asking the same things. Like even though he had moved on, like you'd go back and ask the same thing again. So like we were like, she's just not absorbing like what the answers are. So then we got him to record his answers so that the next morning you could listen to them. Because like, I actually remember one of the boys, I can't remember, it was probably Dewey with his like dry sense of humor, just being like, 
mom's gonna be mad at us if we don't record this. Dr. Radcliffe was like frustrated because then he had to say it all over again for like the uh, like 10th time. <laughs> and then finally, I think he was like, all right, you guys just like take a breather. I'll come back once we know anything else. There was a recording? Really? It turns out my children had started a voice memo on my phone. Oh, that explains why I was holding my phone out. That Dewey, he knew it would be important for me to know. Such a kindness. It's such a blessing to have others know you so well. I wondered where it was. This week, Billy located my voice memos in an old hard drive five years ago. That's one broken and one stolen phone later. It's amazing. There were actually two family meetings that night with Dr. Radcliffe. Here is an excerpt. I'm so sorry for, you know, this tragedy. And I can't tell you enough, just for what it's worth. I mean, like, you know, I, you know I'm telling you all this stuff and I'm just kind of spouting it off. But I mean, like, you know, I realize that, like, this is devastating. And I mean, it, it's hard for me to, you know, do this and to even, like, kind of be here. But, you know, I, I feel like I really kind of, I, I want to give you a sense of what to expect and give you some hope, but not kind of paint an unrealistic picture. But um, please know that, I mean, it's really hard to even be, be here and to be even give you, you know, talking, you know, about this stuff because it, it's, it's just a tragedy. Thank you for being here and having the courage to talk to us about it. It is hard. Day two had begun. Billy seemed frozen, totally numb immovable. I remember watching him from afar. After a while, he took a seat awkwardly as if he were the tin man trying to get himself into a chair. He and I sat in complete silence. My mind was sort of empty, really. I was going through the mental Rolodex of our children, almost as if to anchor myself. Archer was our fourth child of five. He had just turned 17 on July 20th. Paula was turning 25 later this month. Pete was 22. Dewey is 19. Dutch. Dutch. Oh, my God. Our youngest son, Dutch. Dutch is 13. He had been away at camp since June. He had no idea of any of this. It was the big summer for him to spend eight weeks in the woods of Maine without a care in the world except winning color wars, the end of season, all camp, mini Olympics-like sporting event and the great out of doors he so loved and which he had talked about and lived for all year long. I don't know how much time passed in the family waiting room. It felt like forever. 
I just remember the silence and Billy breaking the silence when he asked me, how do you want to tell Dutch? I guess we both had Dutch on our mind. Going crazy, you know. I now know through the interviews that my children had an experience of me, and so did Chris Radcliffe, of being, well, sort of crazy. But the way it was for me was a little different. I mean, it's true, I was out of my mind. But I also sort of knew I was out of my mind. And, and that's what was so strange. Like, it was just the way it was. And there was nothing I could do about it. It was so crazy. When the people I interviewed said I was really out of it and all my children report that the hospital wanted to admit me, which must have terrorized my kids, I can really understand that. And I'm deeply moved by the impact on them. And I just want to wrap my arms around each of them over and over and say, I'm okay. We're okay. I'm here fully with you. How hard that must have been. Frightening and scary. Just another big thing to try and make sense of. I mean, they didn't know how long my craziness would last. Perhaps a lifetime. And maybe that's how it all starts when people go really crazy for a long time. But for me, I also felt present in a weird way. Like I knew what I was searching for. On the inside somewhere, on the inside of me, I had this knowing. I knew what I wanted. I knew what I wanted to know. I was not scrambled about that at all. I was just having a very difficult time coordinating my thinking with my actions and my speech. Like this being out of it or out of control just sort of took over. But I still knew what was going on and like the tunnel vision of what I needed to know. Inside, I had some clarity. And as for everything outside the tunnel, it was like I was watching from afar. I was watching them from afar. It's like maybe that gave me some clarity from a distance. It, it's, it's strange. I'm wondering if any of you has ever had that happen. And I'd like to explore, maybe that's another aspect of shock rather than mental breakdown. It's just an aspect that really helps you to survive. Dr. Radcliffe returned after we had all seen Archer. He reluctantly, but kindly agreed to another family meeting. I still had one main question I was looking for an answer to. Here's an excerpt of that recording. Another stories, right? Where they walk again. Do they ever have sexual functioning again? Like having families? I don't know the answer to that. Um, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there are ways to, you know, um, well, yes, I do know the answer to that. Yes, it is possible for people with spinal cord injury to have sexual function. That's what I needed to know. Family, it's so important. I know my children will want families of their own someday.
And as for Archer's type of injury, I learned months later on that what Dr. Radcliffe called a burst fracture was what contributed to Archer's various diagnoses thereafter, from C5 to C4 to C3, C4, and then what the medical community came to call a C2, C5 burst, Asia A complete. Burst is a term used when the vertebra in the neck are completely severed, crushed. How could we forget with Dr. Radcliffe's explanation? When a traumatic impact is particularly forceful, it creates minute bone fragments potentially floating in the spinal canal. So when Dr. Radcliffe told us he got everything out, it then made sense to me. In our interview recently, Dr. Radcliffe explained to me that the impact of Archer's trauma actually split the C5 vertebra into two pieces that couldn't even be screwed back or plated together. He required a donor that night. Thank you, donor, whoever you are. We really were lucky Archer was alive that night. Thank you, beach club lifeguards, James and Davis. Thank you, beach patrol. Thank you, city of Cape May. Thank you, EMTs. Thank you, Dr. Radcliffe. Archer on a long gurney was wheeled into one of those patient rooms along the long hallway. We had been waiting for a while. There had been some issues with his waking up after the surgery, as I recall. We were told we could see him, but that we had to take turns. I wonder if Archer remembers us that night. I will never forget the first time I saw him after surgery. He was full of so many tubes and his whole body looked very swollen. His face, his arms, his hands, tiny tubes and larger tubes were threaded through his nose and others to his mouth. One for air, another for liquid food, another for medication. They were each taped down to his skin so they would not move. He was on a ventilator for oxygen. His head was bandaged, and he was in a large, hard plastic neck brace, like a big queen's collar. But he looked beautiful to me. Alive. The room had many noises and swooshing sounds from the many machines keeping him alive, and I didn't want to leave him, and I didn't. The children and Billy took turns coming to see him since they were only allowing two of us to be with him at a time. He was barely awake, it seemed. I watched how they suctioned him regularly out of the corner of his mouth, although there wasn't much room because of the other tubes. He was very still. His eyes would sort of open slightly like little slivers and then roll into the back of his head and then just close. I wondered, I wondered what it was like for him then. It was disturbing to me, though, that even though he was so motionless, each time they stuck a long tube down into his throat to suction out his lungs, they said so the ventilator could work. It seemed to cause Archer incredible distress, and his shoulders would twitch and jerk 
which causes arms to sort of flail. I couldn't imagine having tubes threaded down my throat. But the gagging, there was nothing he could do or say. And he had no hands to just reach up and grasp the tube or the nurse's hands and say, stop. I felt like I was watching from afar. But I swear I saw Archer's arm move on its own. I mean, I didn't think he was really paralyzed. Surely he would get feeling back again. They didn't know Archer. He would come out of this. He would heal. All my children have miraculous healing power in their bodies. We used to say it over and over when they were kids. I mean, they really do. They get that from Billy. You will heal, Archer, my darling. It was as if I were talking with him. And Archer would open his eyes and then close his eyes. And it would be the buzzing and humming of the machines again. But I believed he knew I was there. Oh, I want to share something else with you. You know, even in my craziness, I was crystal clear about something. Archer would never be left alone in that hospital. Here's an excerpt of that second recorded meeting with Dr. Radcliffe. Once we get a sense of ventilator, so you should have a sense within the next, like, let's say 24 to 48 hours of just how long this will be ventilator-wise. And I mean, if it's, you know, if they say, well, yeah, we're gonna try to pull the ventilator or pull the tube out or something on, you know, in, in five days, maybe it's worthwhile to have someone here to kind of talk with them and spend time with them in the room and stuff like you were doing and, and stuff like that. You know, there are people who are like unconscious and have other injuries and are here for weeks or months and they don't always have family with them. You know, we can call them. We have a whole protocol for like calling and communicating. We're never going to have Archer here without somebody here. Yeah. Always. We will always have somebody here with him. We will. We all spent the night in the hospital. We wanted to be together and we wanted to be there for Archer. And I don't think they wanted to leave me either. The dawn was breaking into a new day. I sent out a text and copy and pasted it over and over to everyone in my phone. I texted. Surgery went as well as expected. He broke his neck and they fused together C3, C4, C5. Long night, ventilator, tubes. He recognizes me and can nod a bit, but no movement in arms or legs, and we just won't know for two years. Please, please pray. We need everyone to pray for a full recovery. Miracles do happen. His left arm moved ever so slightly when he was distressed, Ray gagging. And I just believe we can get his arms and hands back in time with God's help. I taped a miraculous Mary medal to his bed. He is very brave and lion-hearted and knows the importance of stillness, and that is what we need. We will need very excellent PT, etc., and he will need a lot of support of friends, one step at a time. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Family meetings. Wouldn't it be amazing if all doctors who work in life and death and life-altering specialties were trained in how to have family meetings, real meetings, meetings with interactions, 
that understood trauma, the craziness of mental processing or lack thereof, the indelible memories that kindness provides, even if devastating and complicated news, the impact of trauma and deep loss. They could be trained in not being afraid of trauma reactions because while scary, they are normal human reactions and being arrogant or brash, spouting off knowledge doesn't help a person in trauma because biologically, a person having any kind of a traumatic reaction is incapable of fully hearing what's being told to them anyway. They could be like Dr. Radcliffe, take the risk and accept the invitation for the family meeting, or they could initiate a family meeting and give information with love and care and allow for questions, many questions. Wow, it would be a game changer if that skill set were taught in medical school and annually for doctors in practice and doctors in hospitals and doctors in all those specialties. They're already special people choosing a career in trauma. I mean, imagine. It would not only promote healing for families, it would begin a process of informed decision-making that might just hold some families together under such stress. And as family meetings would be one of the ways of dealing differently with trauma on the front end, yes, the benefit would be for patients and their families, both short-term and long-term. But I think there would be an equally powerful benefit for doctors and the emergency medicine personnel. I mean, it's hard working in a trauma environment day after day. I think about those medical workers a lot. It's no wonder they are distanced. It's raw. You heard Dr. Radcliffe. It was hard for him to accept that invitation and just be with us. It took real courage. It took love. So many of you are also writing me about the truth in your inner wonderings about what you might do if you were to receive news that your child was gravely injured, like being paralyzed forever. Yeah, we know it can happen. And there's all kinds of bad news out there. I, I mean, I know, not just paralysis, cancer, disabling disease, other catastrophic accidents deforming the body or the brain, fatal car crashes, even death. I mean, some of you have lived through the life and death with a child or a loved one, and you are very brave continuing on, even with a broken heart. Others, I know, secretly hold in your hearts that terror that something might happen to one of your children. And yes, it can. And just like that, life can change profoundly. Family meetings, yep. Family meetings. They are wonderful rituals to create family culture that is cohesive, that has a chance, probably even a high probability, even in hard times. I mean, they're not a guarantee, of course, that you won't get bad news or that you won't even fall apart for periods of time or have some internal fractures here and there. I mean, that's all part of life. 
but they sure do build a resiliency, a collective truth, and a strong sense of cohesion over time. Even now, with schools being canceled for a semester or a year, especially for little children or eighth graders or seniors in high school or college freshmen or seniors, that's serious stuff. Family meetings. If you focus on dialogue, understanding, and problem solving, you can really engender a feeling of unity in all your family members, starting when they're young. I mean, you know the feeling. We are one. I matter. I am loved. I count. They see me. They hear me. It's a feeling of connection, of interconnection, of interconnection, of oneness. Maybe you have a story about a feeling of oneness with your family when you were in a crisis or a difficult time. Maybe you did something to create that, or maybe someone did something for you that created that feeling of unity. If so, please write me, blink of an eye at funnelradio.com. Or better yet, have a family meeting and share that story, that memory with your family. Shared memories are very powerful because no one's memory is exactly the same as anyone else's. Together, though, you can get a more complete picture. Inclusion, it's all about integrating those differences. It makes for a more cohesive whole. Let's send a positive intention to anyone today around the planet who feels disconnected from their family. Let's send them a feeling of comfort. And in order to send that out, we need to feel it. Can you feel what comfort and cohesion feels like? Can you close your eyes and allow yourself to be wrapped in that feeling of cohesion, comfort, the warmth of that comfort, like the comfort of being held in someone's arms, or like being in the bosom of your mother or grandmother, or someone who loved you so much. And when they held you as a child, you knew that and felt it. Can you feel that? I mean, I can right now. I'm thinking of you right now. And I'm sending that feeling of comfort to you. Now you send your feeling of comfort to someone else in the world who needs it. Right now. Just call out a name. Any name. Carol. Joshua. Monique. Miguel. Anna. They'll get it. And we'll all be better for it. And gather your family together, even if they haven't been together for a long time. Have a family meeting. Or even if you are in the same house and have been together for a long time, gather in a family meeting. They're intentional. Include the little kids and the big kids. Do it over Zoom. Pick a topic and let everyone talk one at a time in a circle. Life. It's so precious. 
sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe via email on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. If you have a story to share, please contact Louise Phipps Sims directly, blinkofaneye at funnelradio.com.